Well, all right, kiddos, it's time to sharpen up those edges and grease up your chains. We are going to live it up with mountain life. Dropping in five, four, three, two, one. Well, all right. What's up, mountain lifers, mountain lovers, mountain enthusiasts, weekend warriors, granolas, hippies, dog walkers, and anybody else out there who likes getting outside and has somehow stumbled into what we're doing here. What are we doing here? We're living it up with mountain life, and we're going to do so on a monthly basis, together, like a team. My name is Feet Banks. I'm the editor of Mountain Life Coast Mountains, and I'm happy to be here. How about you? How are you doing? How's your summer going? Are you sweating your nuts off? Here in BC, we're coming out of a heat wave. Hottest day in Canada ever recorded. Just happened. Just up the road. What's up with that? Do you think global warming is a thing? Do you think we should be mowing down all the old growth forests? I don't think we should. Those big trees are fun to rock around in. Those big trees are good for animals, and they're good for the planet, and they clean the air, and they hopefully cool things down. I don't know what's happening there. Maybe maybe people are afraid those trees are going to burn down if they don't log them. We're in forest fire season. It could happen. This seems like the new reality. What does it all mean? These are questions we might dive into in this pod, but not today. Today we're going to talk about getting out there, going deep into the backcountry, into the wilderness. You know, the COVID just happened. That was a crazy trip, wasn't it? Uh, a lot of people went outdoors, though. Couldn't go anywhere, but you could go outdoors, which around here we believe that's a good thing. The more people you can put out into the natural world, the better chance of them understanding why that world's important, why it's worth protecting, and uh, how they can become better people by spending more time out there. That's kind of what we're into here at Mountain Life. So, you know, get out there. Doesn't matter if it's a, a, a stroll in the park or a four-day epic you know, deep in the backcountry, get out there and have fun and adventure. That's what we're going to talk about on this show, you know, going deep, going shallow, just going. And, you know, to that extent, our first ever guest is the kind of guy that likes to go deep. He goes deeper, climbs higher, dances later into the night, and generally just ups the ante on whatever he does. Tim Emmett, one of the world's preeminent all-around climber, mountaineer, adventurer guys, you know, Climbs rock, ice, big mountain, deep water soloing pioneer, trad, alpine. Dude can even climb a ladder with a lot more style and grace than you or I, I'll tell you that. And, uh, you know, he's a friend of the magazine. He's written for Mountain Life before. His photos, of course, have been, he's been featured in photos in the mag. The guy definitely sends it. Uh, first time I met him was in Whistler after a, uh, one of the Mountain Life Multiplicity shows, which was an event multimedia speaking event we used to throw up there for the uh for the whistler ski and snowboard festival uh before the world ended there and the plague struck but uh yeah i ran into tim he didn't have his shirt on so he was uh easy to spot but what i noticed most was tim has this quality this presence he's fully engaged with whatever's happening and whoever's around him bump into him on the street and he looks you right in the eye and asks how you're doing and it seems like he cares and he's stoked on what you've been up to and he's always been up to something too. So whatever's happening, Tim's right there with you. And I think that state of mind probably makes him a better athlete and a better adventurer, but it definitely makes him fun to talk to. So here we go. Episode one, live it up with mountain life. Let's roll with Tim Emmett. 
Okay, we are here in Squamish, and with me today is the legend in his own time, Mr. Tim Emmett. Tim, thanks for your time. Hey, nice to see you, Feet. Yeah, it's good to uh, good to be part of this. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I feel like we should just take it from the top. You know, the top of the world, um, Everest. You had to uh, you had to cancel on a trip this year because of the COVID. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It's happened a couple of times now, actually. Um, I went out there in 2018, and uh, we tried to climb it in the autumn. Uh, which doesn't happen very often, hadn't been done for about a decade. And we saw a big Serac when the clouds cleared and it was about 3,000 feet above us on the side of the mountain. And it was totally, um, I was going to say disjointed, it was detached from all the way around the side of it. And it was like the ship's prow that was leaning over. And it it really looked like it was about to go. It was only connected at the bottom. And this thing was probably about 200 foot high. So uh, we had a chat with the crew and decided that it would probably be a really smart move to not expose any of our team to but going underneath it for, for for any reason you know yeah. it was just like not justifiable really whether it's the sherpas like oh, the route know. went right under it yeah and the exposure time underneath it was probably about f- between four and six hours each way and we'd have to go through it um well we'd have to go through it four times minimum but the sherpas would have to go through it way way more than that to set up camp one and two and three and four and all that sort of thing so yeah. uh you know i mean when, when you see something like that and you see i don't know man i just think that there's there's absolutely no way that you can justify exposing other people that have got families and all that sort of stuff to to that that level of risk when it's pretty risky anyway yeah. you can actually see something um uh joe Vinaccio, my boss at mountain harbour he's a really really top bloke actually he was saying that it's a bit like playing russian roulette but then you put a bunch of extra bullets in the gun yeah you know, and it, it really does change the dynamics of what you're doing so yeah going back to your question we pulled out of that trip and then i was going to go back last year in the spring and that got shut down um so no one has sent uh, went up everest from the in the Nepalese side and then this year there is I was invited to go out with uh, Madison Mountaineering as a a guide actually as a co-guide to help with his express team which is the it's like a four-week turnaround where you pre-acclimatize first um, at home in a tent at night so you're sleeping in a um, uh, a tent that's got less less oxygen concentration in it and uh, and then the idea with that is that it increases your hemoglobin count so that you're more adapted to flying in at a higher altitude um and then yeah i mean it's you you, you're gonna find it pretty tough no matter what because the um apart from the fact there being less oxygen there there's also a lower pressure of air compared to down here at sea level so um it's a fast way of doing it but it comes with its its additional challenges but because of uh, covid the clients that i was going to be doing that with weren't able to go so as a result yeah i um i'm here which is not a bad thing because i love squamish yeah Yeah, yeah, i mean that that decision making you know to pull off in in 2018 i i i remember when that happened and it was it seemed like just such a a mature uh, move um, you know especially you've got sort of your boss with Mountain Hardware with you and and you know and just the excitement of being there I'm sure adds a little bit of like um, pressure to to perform but would would do you think you would have made that decision as a as a 21 year old climber or or has this sort of risk management always been uh, a strong point of yours would I have made that decision as a 21 year old climber huh probably not probably not 
And it's interesting because I think when I was younger, I was definitely naive to a lot of things. And when you don't know, you just go for it, right? Because you don't realize that there's potential danger there because you're just not aware of it at all. Whereas, well, I don't know. It's a really interesting one, this. I mean, hmm. Hmm. God, that's a good question for you. I'm not quite sure how to answer it. But I think being a parent, you definitely are much more thoughtful about the people around you. Yeah. Well, that's what I feel anyway, because you're always looking out for someone else. And I felt like I was really looking out for Joe um, because he I just felt like I was his wingman. Right. And one of the reasons why I felt like I was there was to to give him good advice and guide him and help him out. And even though I wasn't a guide, I mean, that wasn't my role on that trip at all. Yeah. Madison Mountaineering were, were guiding him with Garrett Ma- Madison. But uh, even still, I just the difference between being 21 and being 47, which is what I am now, is that in the last 15 years, I've had a lot of friends that have passed away lots and i've been to lots of funerals and i've dealt with a lot of parents um and other people that have have had to uh come to terms with you know the person that they love not being there and i think as a result of that i've seen the impact of making poor decisions or making decisions which you kind of could have made better so for me on this trip to everest it was an absolute no-brainer as soon as i saw the picture which was taken by one of the guides who sorry sorry by one of the sherpas who i'd just been climbing with the day before um dorji and he i could just tell by the expression on his face and the way that he looked at me when he showed me the photo that he was concerned yeah and he's got 18 everest summits oh is it more no no it's 18 he's been up there 18 times and when you look at someone that's got that amount of experience, um, you just would be a fool to turn a blind eye to it, you know. And I think that seeing someone's expression is, um, it, you know, in in front of you is it tells so much more than the words they're using. You know, the way someone says something, the tone and the facial expressions, all that sort of stuff can have a massive impact really on the implications of what they're saying. And uh, for, for me, it was like, there's just, how can we possibly let people go through this and subject the, them to this obviously much higher level of risk, knowing that they, they not only could they lose their, their lives, but then there's other people as well that are going to be affected by that too. So yeah, I hope that answers your yeah, question yeah. a little bit. I mean, you know, just touching on, on that loss and the funerals and, and, you know, we, I, I feel like that's part and package of, uh, you know, making a life for yourself in the mountains, you know, stuff happens. Um, well, you- yeah, Fee, maybe like we can uh, introduce people to the fact that I was a base jumper for 10 years because that's the majority of colleagues yeah. or friends that, that passed away. I mean, I have had lots of climbing friends that have passed away as well, but particularly in the base jumping world and the wingsuit world was, um, um, was where most of that happened. So yeah, that was, uh, I mean, geez, man, it was so fun. And I'm obviously saying this in the past tense because I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, but like some of the best experiences in my life, without doubt, are when I combined um, climbing with a wingsuit. Yeah. You know, it just was like a dream. And I miss it for sure. But I made the choice to stop doing it because I felt quite strongly that if I continued doing it, it was literally only a matter of time. 
And it was that realization for me that made the, it, that was the defining moment. Because yeah. right up until that point, like for the 10 years that I was base jumping, I always thought that if I was really smart and I was well-versed, well-read, and I made really good decisions, I was in control of whether I'd pass away or not. Mm-hmm. And it was at the point where I realized that that wasn't the case. That I was like, oh no. <laughs> and then um, and then I thought, well, if I'm not in control of it, then is it going to be this jump or the next one or the hundredth one? Or is it going to be that? Uh, you just don't really know. And yeah. it's, I think as soon as you get that element of doubt in your mind, it really kind of sets you on the wrong path, you know. And I, for me, um, I, I just couldn't justify doing that for my wife and family. And yeah, your, sort of stuff your too, son you know? was already born when you were having this dialogue with yourself? He, he... Well, no. No, he wasn't, actually. Right. No, he was about to be. Right. Um, but one of my best friends um or one of my best base jumping friends sean leary who i did my last base jump with actually he passed away just before his son was born and just before well just after my son was born right and i just had a really i'd had a, a crash and um the combination of those three uh situations you know having a a, a crash where i was totally out of control and yeah, that was really scary, actually. And I didn't have any, I really didn't have any control as to what was going to happen next. I knew I was going to crash. And I was just like, oh, no, is this it? Yeah. This is it. This is what, this is, I'm going to be one of those statistics now. And I got away with it, which I was really fortunate and lucky and glad to, to say. But also, you know, then um, Sean died and then my son was born. And that all happened in a very short period of time. And I was just like, looked at all that information. And I was just like, well that's it you know i can't justify keep doing this because if i do i'll be really selfish you know knowing yeah. what i do in my own mind so yeah my my friend ian mcintosh said that was the hardest mm-hmm. thing to walk away from though mm-hmm. he said man it's so fun mm-hmm. and flying. i'm uh, and i'm do you know what i'm so grateful that i'm a climber because what i what i did i mean i got really sort of distracted from climbing um getting into base jumping because it's so addictive and so fun um but kind of strangely it's also um very similar like wingsuit flying this might sound really strange but like when you've been wingsuit flying for 10 years the process of uh jumping into the air and then flying is kind of the same every time you do it and uh whereas with climbing it's not because you've got different rock types different styles of climbing and there's many different aspects to it whereas with wingsuit flying for sure you can fly different lines but in the in a, in a nutshell certainly for me the most interesting flying was always the the flying that was the most dangerous and when you were flying flying close to objects whether it's trees or built not so much buildings but trees mountainsides and things like that that's really where you get the like the exhilaration and the sensation of speed because yeah. you know what it's like like the close i mean if you go down a if you go down the um the whistler sliding center and you're on a um not, not a, toboggan, a on skeleton a, on, yeah on a skeleton you know and your face is yeah. like two inches away from the eyes you feel like you're doing about 250 miles an hour but you're not and it's just because you're so close to the ground um, and the thing is, if you jump out of an aeroplane with a wingsuit on and you just fly around in the space, you just don't, you don't really get much of a sensation of speed. But if you've got a cloud near you and you're flying around that, that's pretty cool. But then if you've got like a, um, a mountainside and particularly trees, like if you fly past trees, yeah. it, you really get that sensation of speed. And it's incredibly exhilarating having 
that um, three-dimensional awareness to be able to go right and left or down a bit or down a lot or maybe even up a little bit. And, and it's um, it's like a bit of a childhood dream, really, to be able to fly by moving your body and zoom past stuff, you know. it's Yeah. Uh, yeah, but having climbing, is really I, it really gave me the chance to focus on that. And interestingly, since I stopped base jumping, I've done, I mean, I turned 40, I became a dad, and I've done all of my hardest routes, like on rock and ice and, and, and everything, yeah. you know, so, yeah. And you've been climbing over 25 years. You started when you were a teenager? Yeah, more. You know, I've been climbing for 32 years now. I climbed, wow. started climbing when I was 15 at school, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's been a journey, man. Like, honestly, I love it. I absolutely love it. And here I am in Squamish, which I is know, like my favourite in the world we yeah. should talk about that i mean <laughs> the story i got is you're in thailand and you like literally fell out of the sky landed on the beach beside a, a foxy blonde and fell in love like how, how did you end up here where, yeah. wh- where were you before you ended up here that's pretty much it man like uh yeah where was i before I was, I was born in the uk and i lived in the uk for a lot of my life my parents uh moved around a lot and they lived in different countries because my dad was an engineer so we used to follow him around on contracts um so we lived in a little bit in um in saudi arabia up in scotland um mainly in the uk a little bit out in uh in in fact when i was four we were in africa for a little while but yeah mainly in the uk and then yeah i got into base jumping and i used to go to thailand a lot and you know and i kept bumping into all these canadians in thailand popular spot and uh yeah i was base jumping there and i was climbing during the day and i always used to go up to the top of this cliff in the evening because it was the last place that got the sunset and it was amazing just so so awesome and you climb up the back of this tower and the tower's about 430 feet high and for those of you that haven't been there this is on tonsai you look down at the top of this tower and the tower overhangs so you're directly above the beach and there's a bar on the beach and you're looking at the sunset across you know all these islands and sort of james bond style towers and uh yeah you just watch the sunset and you and you funny enough you've got a really dry mouth and there's a bar about four seconds away from you <laughs> and uh yeah and you just like jump off and it's amazing and then you pull your parachute land on the beach and um and it's a really great way of like making friends and um, getting free beers (laughs) and just you know just having a really great time and um yeah one of the times i did that katie was on the beach and uh yeah we we started chatting i was actually it's interesting that we're right here right now because i had a film i had a one of the old school cameras on top of my helmet which was huge you know this is before the day of the gopro yeah and katie one of well the reason one of the reasons why katie came up to me was because she was working at the western film festival and she said well you must have loads of videos so you know maybe you should send some videos in i'll have a look at them and maybe we can get you into the festival and so um so we exchanged email addresses and and yeah that was that and then she lured me over here uh, and had you had you must have heard of Squamish before as a climber, or had you ever been here before? Well, this is the thing. Like so, the year before that, in fact, no, it's quite a few years before that. In two thousand and two, uh, I bumped into a bunch of Canadians from Squamish in Tonsai, same place. Uh, Matt Madaloni was one of them, and there were a whole load of others. And um, yeah they were talking about Squamish and they were saying oh it's pretty cool and it's you know by the sea there's mountains there the rock climbing is really good it's the adventure capital of Canada and all this sort of thing it sounded amazing so I had heard of it but I'd never been here before I'd been ice climbing in the Rockies um but not on this side and then yeah Katie lured me over here and we had this like whirlwind 
10 days of amazingness on the west coast and uh and then at the end of it i proposed to her and uh i was like yeah what do you think and well i didn't say that but um <laughs> anyway she she was game on and uh and then we got married and i've been here ever since so yeah not not too shabby not too shabby this yeah. winter uh you've been skiing a lot yeah yeah well being a brit i'm not very good at skiing i'm not like canadians like canadians kind of learn to ski before they start walking don't they um, out, out like here that. they do for sure right <laughs> yeah totally um but yeah the brits i mean i didn't start doing winter sports until i was after 20 um you there were opportunities to go skiing when i was younger but it costs loads of money and you've got to fly somewhere you see because you can't really go skiing in england so um i never went skiing because it was too much money um for for our family so uh you know i got into to snowboarding um in chamonix and then more recently well actually the, the transition into skiing was um because i was base jumping and i was watching shane mcconkey doing big cliff jumps with his base rig and i'm just like you know what that's not really going to work on a snowboard but if i got into skiing then i could I could do some ski base and I got really into that idea. So I started to ski and the more skiing I did, the more I realized that you've actually got to be a really good skier to be able to jump off cliffs like that in control. Hmm. Um, so it was going to be a bit of a longer process than I thought. And then by that, by the time I kind of got, was became aware of that, um, I stopped base jumping. So I never quite got around to doing the ski base thing, but then my son, he's been skiing, he's seven now and he's, um, yeah, He's super psyched for skiing, and uh, and it's just been such an amazing um, adventure questing around with him, and he loves going fast just like his dad. So uh, so yeah, I've been trying to get my skiing up to scratch so I can keep up with him now. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, as a you know this this sporty parenting, and uh, you know how for, for me anyhow having a kid has really boiled it right back down to you know you can have just as much fun hitting a, a two foot air on the side of the ski hill with your kid as you can on you know a multi-day trip out into something far more serious just because the the child enthusiasm well uh, i mean absolutely feet like a, a classic example of that is when when rocco was six um we were sitting on the ski lift and uh i said so where, where, do, you, where do you want to go next rocco and he's like hey dad let's go to the park he's like look you can follow me you don't have to go over all the jumps but you can just follow me and then uh, we'll go that way and and i thought oh here we go <laughs> <laughs> awesome the start of the future you know. yeah and so he he follows you around on your climbing trips and stuff as well or not really no i mean the thing is being a professional climber i've been really cognizant of not forcing him into that sport right because i've seen parents or i've seen kids that have been um they've been kind of forced into climbing and then they've they've climbed really well at a young age and then they've just stopped and then they haven't done it anymore or they've got really injured because they've climbed so much at, right. at such a young age that their body because it's been developing at the same time you know it's got a little bit out of balance and they've ended up getting injured so i've been really relaxed about um introducing him to climbing um which is definitely tough at times because he's like he's got the potential to be so much better than me um he's really bendy and he's tall and he's really light and he's got a six pack and all that sort of stuff yeah. so he's got you know all the things that i wish i had <laughs> um i've got some of them but uh yeah it's uh i just love love being a parent um especially around here 
And I love what what I love about it is um, seeing the evolution and how uh, of uh, of learning and development. You know, you're watching this small person who's picking things up so fast, and you're going, "Oh wow! Well, if they're doing that now, what are they going to be doing next year or the yeah. year after yeah. that?" And but the flip side of that, of course, is that you're trying to navigate or guide them without holding them back. You know, and I've I've seen this a lot in the past as well too, and I'm sure many people are um, aware of it. Is that you know, if you tell your kids they can't do something, they're either going to lose confidence, um, or they're not going to do it, or they're going to be like, well, actually, I can, and then they're just going to they're yeah, going to yeah. um, they're going to go against the grain, you know, and uh, and I think there's a lot to be said in nurturing. Um, young spirits who have got open-minded concepts but and, and kind of letting them do that but i think the the problem with it is that it's got consequence you know because a little bit like we talked about at the beginning you know would i have made that decision on everest if i was 21 and you know being naive you don't know about those risks and dangers and i mean it, one thing about being on the west coast here between you know vancouver and whistler um, is that there's a lot of a lot of athletes and there's a lot of athletes that have got kids and there's a lot of kids that are absolutely amazing at what they're doing you know there's like trampoline parks around here and you know when you're watching kids doing aerials on the trampoline park where they've got skis on or snowboards or they're even on a bike and then you've got like all the kids in the jump park in Whistler and I mean it really is going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next 10 or 20 years i mean obviously that's you know the the people that are like 20 or 30 now will have had those opportunities to a certain extent but not not so much the trampoline park so i think the trampoline parks are really going to change the way that the the new age of of young kids doing aerials in whatever sport they do um it's uh, i think it's going to be amazing to see what happens actually but at the same time you know the as the tricks get bigger and harder and tougher the consequence of making mistakes is going to get more severe you yeah. know so it's um i don't know i don't know how to navigate that one i'm sure there's lots of other parents that aren't quite sure too but yeah you got any tips pete uh <laughs> i i do uh just make sure you're having fun right? <laughs> that's and a good that, one I that's like it that. if, if you're not having fun and your kid's not having fun you know maybe yeah. try something else but yeah but you're right it is going to be like kids that grow up with an air sense that's so honed and they've had it as long as they can remember Mm -hmm. um you know it's interesting and you know just to think kids that grow up slacklining and and have this trampoline park and have these bike jump facilities just down the road and and have basically access to do whatever they want yeah so it's it's yeah at the same time you know how much higher can the level be pushed for for you know aerials on skis or mountain bikes or but you know you picked up on a really um uh important point there fee is that having fun you know it's i i think that's crucial and i think if you're having fun you're doing the right thing if you're not having fun well it's an interesting one this because if you look at different um different societies like for example i mean i've traveled to over 70 countries around the world and if you look at say the chinese or maybe the polish some of the eastern european company countries um and the russians like the way of getting good 
is like you just do it over and over and over and over and over and over again and you know it's like that 10,000 hours thing isn't it it's like you know if you've got the volume in then you're going to be better than someone that doesn't because you know there's a certain amount of talent that's involved here but actually you know the the real the best of the best are the ones that train the most that's what I believe the Russian system I mean in the 80s we saw it in hockey right where the Russian kids would get scooped up and put into the hockey life mm-hmm. and just be hockey machines almost and that yeah. was a that was a huge thing canada russia hockey right and there was different two different systems and you know could we beat the russians when they're making sort of like the uh you know rocky four right rocky versus yeah. ivan drago right um so yeah so i, I jumped in there a little bit but so, so that well, versus fun well well the, yeah this thing because um if if you look at the well the olympics that didn't happen um last year that were, were get, it was going to be the first time that climbing got into the olympics apart from speed climbing because speed climbing has been in it a lot but um the, it was r- fascinating from a climber's perspective because in order for you to win a gold medal at the olympics you had to do three disciplines you had to do speed climbing bouldering and rope climbing <laughs> and this is really unusual because the thing is is that people go bouldering and rope climbing they don't go speed climbing ever right and the people that go speed climbing don't really go bouldering or go rope climbing either and the difference between those three disciplines and i'm going to put bouldering and and rope climbing in one camp and i'm going to put speed climbing in the other one and the reason for that is because the people that do really well at speed climbing they train for speed climbing and that is all they do it is not fun right it is just hard work and if they put in enough hard work and they're doing squats and they're really building their legs because you need the power to go up the wall yeah driven by your legs right whereas the climbers that go bouldering and going rope climbing they're i mean they many of them or most of them have been climbing outside loads and and uh you know there's that huge variety of different routes and all that sort of stuff and yeah. um, there's a fun aspect to it and they because the people like adam andre and people like that who had to then get into speed climbing which they've never done before and they actually hated it uh they had to discipline themselves to like train specifically for that so that they can then you know yeah. get up to the level that's where they might be able to get a, a gold medal and going back to what we were talking about here with all these different options for kids on the west coast and there's obviously lots of other parts of Canada as well and all over the world it's one of the one of the things that I'm finding a little bit tricky to come to terms with is my awareness of um what it takes to become the best at something as a kid is very much like you have to just keep doing it over and over and over and over again and I know that but then I look at my son and I don't want to subject him to something where he's not having fun because yeah. I want him to have like a really colourful life experience and, and have lots sure. of fun have, just like you talked about have fun about, on your bike, you know, have fun on the rock, exactly, have fun on the snow exactly. have fun in the water but the flip side of that is that if he does want to excel at something later on down the line if he hasn't engaged in it already and started to go through the the motions of of replication or duplication or or, you know then the chances of him getting to the absolute elite best level is probably not as much if you see what i mean as someone who's maybe from poland or russia or china or or who's had a much more of a regimented um but then i don't know maybe i'm i'm being a bit over uh um um what's the word i'm not sure what to say but like um 
yeah, I think he's only seven, you know. Yeah, yeah, you and might be putting the, the cart before the horse. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I expect there's also lots of people or lots of kids that are, have got an uh, incredible amount of ability and, you know, they... Um, they get really good at what they're going to do anyway. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's fascinating being a parent, isn't it? Because you don't really know what's going to happen in the next sort of 10, 20 years. Do you really? No. No. no you don't no. at all. Even the <laughs> ne- or even the next, you know, two, as the yeah. last two years have shown us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think the Olympics dropped the ball then with their climbing format by making it, you know, taking two totally dis- different disciplines and, and meshing them together? Well... It's a really interesting one, that, because I think the reason why climbing was put into the Olympics, and this is only my opinion, yeah. is because they... Um, that speed climbing was always in the Olympics because it was interesting to watch. It was a spectator sport. And for someone that's not a climber, it's really easy to tell. You know, it's just like so fast and engaging. You know, whoever gets the top first wins. It's that yeah. simple. You know, it's straightforward. Whereas um, with the other sports, it's, it's a bit more complicated because it's point systems and, you know, with bouldering and, and, and uh, rope climbing. But what's happened is because of the speed climbing and being combined into those three um into the all three of them it's got climbing into the olympics and now in the future um so the idea is in 2024 sorry 2025 it, it'll be now i'm not even sure how they're going to do it whether yeah, they're going to yeah. do four years from from this year or last year but anyway the fact that they've changed that th- uh, again so they're going to split them up so right. they're not all one discipline which is the way it should be yeah yeah um, but i guess that having them combined will was a brilliant catalyst to allow that to happen so yeah, yeah i mean it, i think it's great i i'm pretty sure it's not because the olympics uh, appreciated the uh the typical rock climber lifestyle <laughs> a piece of that. and I, I i look i wonder about that you know um the way the olympics is embracing you know surfing skateboarding climbing even snowboarding to an extent like i mean to me you know i grew up out here but these have always been you know lifestyles or, or you know for lack of a better term weed smoking sports right where you know we sort of positioned ourselves as different from the competitive sports and the jocks right and skaters versus jocks or or you know snowboarders versus the world um and now to have all these sports into the the mainstream fold um i think they're you know what are your thoughts on that i think some people rebel and other people don't care and of course everyone's welcome to be a competitive whatever they want but a little bit of it seems to go against the history of the sport almost well i hear what you're saying and i totally agree with you and uh the the great thing about these sports though is that in the the sports themselves there's sub sports there's sub genres and in the same way that um with climbing you've got lots of different aspects of climbing you know you can have someone that's going to enter the olympics and they're going to do really well at that and then you've got someone that's into alpinism or ice climbing or adventure climbing you know big wall climbing you know so they can still differentiate and do their own thing and i just think that in order to get the medal you're going to have to specialize in a pure competition environment and if you want to do that brilliant and if you don't if you want to be a bit more um rogue and and wild and and be out in nature or be maybe where the sport came from 
then that's fine too, you know. But yeah. that I, I do think that there's definitely going to be differentiation of the subgenres in in the activities in the same way that you know, like surfing too. You know, like you know, you, you can be someone like Kelly Slater who's winning a lot of the competitions, and and uh, but you can also be a soul surfer, and then you can look for new breaks and make videos about that, or do our magazine articles about kind of new places and all that sort of stuff. Or you can get into like big wave surfing, and I mean, there's gonna there's obviously big wave competitions now aren't there um oh man some of those i mean um was it kai kai lenny i mean he's amazing have you ever seen some of the things he's doing like he's basically taking tricks into you know massive waves doing yeah. like a 360 jump at the top of a 65 foot wave in portugal you know and then riding the wave and all that sort of stuff and you know going back to what we were talking about before it's really interesting isn't it because kai he um he was mentored by the surfing greats and he was brought up in Hawaii you know that's where he lived and he surfed his whole entire life and now what he's doing is he's taking it to the next level because he's had that um um I mean he's lived it right from the start that that linear drama yeah exactly and and that's so I think that's very very similar really to the young kids around here or young kids that have the exposure to the facilities to be able to do these adventure and extreme sports at such a young age and it being part of their lives and and you kind of see what it's happened with him and then you know it's going to be happening here too you just mentioned ice climbing. Um, when when did you get into that? I know you've you've you know you've done some of the hardest climbs in the world, but when did that start for you? Yeah, ice climbing started for me at university. I was right. in I was in Bangor in North Wales, doing a zoology degree, and I remember. Um, being in my first year and I was I could look out from my Hull's residence out to the Snowdonia mountains which are about 10 or 15 miles away and you could see snow on the mountains and I was from um Somerset or you know various other places but I'd never seen mountains like that before and I remember seeing them covered in snow and and I knew about ice climbing and I just thought well maybe there's some ice climbing to be done I mean what's that all about and I was working in a climbing shop at weekends to get a bit of extra money and there was all this climbing gear in there, ice climbing stuff. And there was this one chap, Jeff Lowe, like total legend, who had made this instructional video about how to ice climb and mix climb. And I used to watch it over and over and over again when I was in the shop waiting for customers to come in. And I learned a lot from that. And then I started doing a bit of ice climbing. Just, you know, you just go out and see what happens. And um buying all my kit secondhand because it's expensive right i remember buying a pair of crampons and a couple of ice axes for 100 quid which is what 170 dollars now which is not too bad <laughs> but that was quite a while ago and you just venture out into the hills and see what happens you don't really know you just make you know, just figure it out don't yeah. you and uh and then a few years later because i was climbing quite hard on rock climbing um, wise i had a buddy a friend of mine neil gresham who would turn around and he's like hey tim have you heard about this like ice climbing competition it's the world cup we should like do some training and go and go and enter it and i initially i was just like what why you these are like the best ice climbers in the world why would you want to do that and uh anyway he's like well look we can just train and he's he's a bit of a training guru he is like the uk number one rock climbing training guru and uh so we did this training plan which i've never done before where we were climbing around inside in uh, this uh like under in sheffield they had all these cellars right underground that were pretty damp and murky and a lot of the climbers would set up these uh boards in there and we'd be swinging around on these boards with their ice axes 
And the ice axes then were, were, they had a slight curve in them, but they were mainly straight shafted and they were really hard to hang on to. And everyone climbed with um, leashes back in the day then. And anyway, like we trained and we went to the ice climbing World Cup. The first competition we went to was in Austria. And somehow Neil and I made it into the final. Like the, the we were in isolation, like with eight people in total. And the only other person in there, apart from the two of us that spoke English, was Will Gadd, you know, the Canadian um, ice guru who we knew a lot about. And we were like, wow, you know, he was our hero. And uh, anyway, there we were. And yeah, we got into the final and, and it was so bizarre, actually. It's really strange. And uh, I ended up coming sixth or something. But after that, I realized that I was probably better at ice climbing than I was at rock climbing. And uh, I kept in the competitions and I got into quite a lot of finals and followed the circuit for a while. Um, and yeah, that was... And I learned a lot too, because you're watching all these people doing the same the same sequence different ways if you see what I mean and you see people fall off and others that don't and you're like well what's the difference between how one person did it and the other one so you learn a lot you know you learn a lot of the tricks because everyone's strong enough so it's technique mm-hmm. that's exactly. the differentiator exactly so um, that was a real education watching all these um, all these really good ice climbers doing all that sort of stuff uh, and then of course when I came over to Canada uh, Will was the only person i knew here apart from katie my wife yeah and i so i kind of got in touch with will and i was like hey will do you want to go climbing and he said well i tell you what i think i've got i think i've got one for you do you want to go do you want to go to this place this cave and he sent me a picture of this cave and it was helmkin falls yeah and he said no one's ever ice climbed in there before and he said, I've been asking lots of people to go, but no one wants to go. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure. <laughs> so we went in there and in 2010, we started climbing in this amazing cave. And for those of you that haven't, don't know what Helmkin Falls is or haven't seen it, it is, I'll try and describe it for you because it really, really is amazing. It's the fourth um, highest waterfall in Canada. And it, it has a, a massive volume of water that pours over it. There's like 1,300... Um, is it cubic meters or cubic feet? Huh, I guess that's a big difference. I think it's cubic feet. 1,300 cubic feet of water every second pours over the top of this thing, and it goes down 540 feet, and uh, it, it creates this incredible cave, which is very, very steep, and it's it's absolutely enormous. It's so big. And we what happened is the, the waterfall never freezes. It just um, creates this spray, this mist, that when it can't when it goes onto the rock it freezes and it, it creates these incredible features which are like they're almost like tentacles that are suspended from the roof of this cave and there's thousands of them and some of them are like a couple of feet long and, and sometimes they're like 20 or 30 or 40 feet long and we went down there to try and find out whether it was possible to climb on these things and yeah we ended up doing a whole host of new routes uh, we went down there seven or eight times over the last t- 10 or 11 years and it's like every time we go down there we do a route that's harder than the year before and and because the ice climbing there is because you're actually climbing on ice it's so steep it's much more challenging than it re- it requires a different level of strength than going ice climbing because right. ice climbing is normally vertical or less than yeah i mean you can have ice climbing 
climbing that's a bit steeper than that where you have to move across rock to get to the ice. But yeah, generally ice follows gravity. Exactly. And straight yeah. down is as straight down as it's going to go. Whereas this cave, I mean, that you know, the room that we're in right now, there's what, maybe 20 foot from one side to the other. In uh, Helmken, you'll be climbing straight across the ceiling, totally upside down right. for like three or four times the length of this room you know i mean it's like proper upside down gymnastic climbing on ice which is totally unique like i've never seen anything like it anywhere else in the world um and it's so fun but it's also pretty spicy because you've got all these things hanging from the the roof above you and they fall off well especially when it goes above freezing so you only ever go down there when it's really cold Sure. And, and this is, you know, a super remote area, the middle of Wells Gray Park, you know, central British Columbia. Uh, it must not see a lot of climbers every winter or is it becoming a, a destination now? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, it is fairly remote, but it's also quite easy to get to. So there's a lookout that you can drive a, a truck to if right. you've got... Well, yeah, I've tried to get in there in a car a bunch of times, but if it snowed, you just can't do that, really. So having a truck's really useful, but you can literally park um, where you can see across to the cave, and it's only, like, you know, a kilometre away or something, And but the way down to it, you have to do a few rappels and all that sort of thing. So it's relatively easy to get to, even though it is quite remote. But it's been quite interesting, because although there's been an enormous amount of press around it, I mean, it's been on the front cover of magazines, left, right, and centre, and it really is, like, one of the most eye-catching ice-climbing destinations in the world, if not the most eye-catching. There aren't that many people that go down there. And I think one of the reasons for that is because if you want to climb something down there, it's it's really hard. Right. You know, you're base level of ability has to be really high and also it's got a very short window so you can only really climb in there between say the middle of january and the middle of february on yeah. on average sometimes a bit before sometimes a bit after but that's it it's definitely got a short window um but for example like angelica rayner who's the ice climbing world champion um she went there and she tried to repeat one of the routes we'd done before but the ice was in such a crazy form formation that literally getting off the ground was really challenging because there were these huge kind of hanging curtains that looked really unstable and just navigating your way through those to to start the route was uh looked very um pretty consequential i mean if you hit them and they all fell down you know you could be in all sorts of trouble so uh she was gonna go um, and not climb anything and Clem and um, Premel, my Slovenian friend who I've done a lot of climbing in there since we were like well wait wait we, you know we're, we're just about to finish our route this route called Clash the Titans um, you, do, you can do that because it's all cleared and ready to go so she ended up um, staying and then she spent three days on that route and she did it eventually uh, which was the third ascent and it was the first ascent by a female of any of the routes in there um i'm pretty sure that's right there's a chance that sarah hoonikin might have done one of the routes but i don't think so um but uh, at that point but it was the point is she was like the world champion and it took her three days to do a route which i mean we gave it a grade of 10 and normally she'd like do a 10 first go you know right. if it was a mixed climb but because this was like a, we gave it wi 10 and this ice climbing grade which was like totally random because it's it's only applicable really to helm can falls that the, the wi 10 level 
11 and 12 because of the style of climbing there but um it's a lot more hmm it's interesting you have to have like the skills of a mixed climber and the strength of a mixed climber but you also have need the skills of an ice climber because you get the thing is you've got to you've got to choose where you place your ice axe and how you place it and what angle you put it in at and you've got to know whether it's going to hold or not and all these things i mean when you sometimes you might have your pick in by you know the the length of your fingernail and then you hang off it with one arm and it stays and sometimes it doesn't stay it'll yeah. rip. so it definitely requires a little bit more um kind of awareness i suppose as an ice climber to be able to climb in there as far as rock and ice grades, um, you know, you've been all over the world. Are they fairly consistent? I mean, we always used to make jokes on the ski hill about whether a cliff was actually 20 feet or whether it was an American 20 feet, right? Which would, <laughs> which would be closer to 14. Um, yeah, yeah. Is, are the grades, you know, is that just part of the game where you show up and you know what the grade is, but then you find out that it's a little bit different than you expected? Or are they fairly consistent? Well, that's that's uh, a good question because I think rock climbing wise they're quite consistent, but right. ice climbing wise, no, they're not. And I think the reason for that is because they're always different. Yeah, the ice know? stacks up different every it, year. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I think that uh, usually with hard ice and mixed routes, if you're using ice axes, it's generally down to how steep they are and how long they are. You know, so for example, if you're climbing without your feet for 15 minutes it's probably going to be like m14 or something whereas if you're climbing without your feet for five minutes it might be sort of m11 right you know so and what i mean by that is if it's so steep that you can't put your feet up above you um you do these things called figure of fours or sure you do whatever you can really to try and keep your, your, your feet um moving but um yeah, the ice climbing grace. I think Will Gad described it the best. Um, going climbing at Helmkin Falls is a bit like big wave surfing. You know, it requires a particular um, level of psych and skill and awareness. And some people are into it and some people are not, you know. Whereas you can have someone that's really skilled at going surfing on a, you know, a, a medium-sized wave or something. But as soon as you get into the big wave territory, it changes the game a little bit. Yeah. Um, and going climbing at Helmkin is, is uh, it's a bit like, it's a bit like sort of mountaineering, but with really, really hard climbing as well. So you've got m- a lot more um, potential danger, I guess. So there's a lot more things to consider when, you, when you're climbing there. Speaking of surfing, I know you've been, uh, since you've been out here, the boys have gotten you into paddleboarding. Yeah. Um, and also as a, as a excuse to go deep water soloing, deep water solo season's coming up. Is that one of your favorite things to do, you know, where you, where you're totally unencumbered by any gear and, and you still have the, you know, the safety of the ocean beneath you? Yeah. Yeah, I love deep water soloing. I mean, I've spent many, many years developing deep water soloing with some friends over the year, um, over all over the world. Like predominantly it started in the UK and then we went to Mallorca and Mallorca really is like the icing on the cake. As far as deep water soloing goes, it doesn't really get much better. Uh there are other places you can do it too. I mean, there's like Vietnam, Thailand, um and oh, I mean there's obviously lots of places to go deep deep water soloing around the world, but I there's a couple of reasons why I I 
I've always said that I love deep water sailing the most. And I think it's because when I'm doing it in the moment, it is absolutely pure, uh, 100% in the present where you're climbing and only climbing. Yeah. Like the only thing you're thinking about is where's the next holding? Can I get it? Yeah. I mean, you might be thinking, oh, wow, I'm really high up and this is really scary. But you're you're so engaged in the moment and so engaged in the climbing that you don't have to worry about getting your gear in or clipping your quick draw or anything like that you know it's just pure exhilaration because the further you get the the kind of more scary and the more heightened the experience gets because you're you just uh, I mean you're getting really close to the top and you're probably getting more tired and it gets more exciting and you know you know you're going to take a much bigger fall if you fall off so what I think I love about it the most is that it's it's a very pure form of climbing but also it's particularly exhilarating because it's like soloing so yeah. it's scary and but it does have a safety net where you can kind of push it and you you know you probably get away with it if if you're if you're lucky yeah you know? yeah <laughs> but i love i love water sports i mean I, I always have done um really enjoy surfing and uh, one of the things i like about surfing is the again like the excitement factor when you like the when the big set comes through when you can see it on the horizon and you're just like oh here it comes and then you get you've got that uh you got to get ready and you know you see the waves and you're trying to decide whether you're going to take them or not and then but particularly around here um free diving mate like right been getting really into free diving and that's new for you or well i i did my free diving course in indonesia about 10 years ago but uh the thing is going free diving in the uk is not that straightforward um, and it's one of those sports where it's much easier to do in warm water. Um, so I did a bit in Oman when I was on a deep water soloing trip. Then we tied a rope off the off the boat and were f- free diving down there. But more recently, I started doing it in Howe Sound here and got a nice warm wetsuit and met, met up with a chap called uh, Luca uh, Malagotti, and he is uh, Italian originally, but he does um, free diving courses on the west coast. And he gave me lots of confidence to like push it and we ended up putting a rope down to 30 meters and uh he came down to 30 meters with me and it was amazing i'd never been that deep and like if you can imagine that you're surrounded by the same thing in every direction yeah you know you look down and it's the same as if you look to your right or left or look up you know it's there's a slight difference in the hue of the, you know the the lightness but you're totally surrounded by nothing by blue apart from this rope and then and then of course you have the the journey back up to the surface which can take a while right you know and you there's nothing you can do about it apart from just keep going and try and stay calm and relaxed and uh, I really enjoy the sort of the the mental challenge of free diving because it's really scary. Well, I thought it was really scary when I first started doing it, um, especially when you get into uh, you get into the point where you start sinking. So if you haven't free dived before, what happens is when you take a full lungful of air, you've got about four liters of air in your lungs, and on the surface you'll float, and then you swim down. And if you've got a wetsuit on, you need weights and you go down. And once you get, if you, if you set the weights right, once you get down to about 30 feet, what happens is you start to sink. Because your air is compressed. Exactly. One, one atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't have to move and then you just go, you right. start going down into the, into the depths. And when you get down to sort of 70, 80, 90 feet, it starts to get quite dark around here. 
So you're literally on uh, an escalator into the darkness. You know, you're on this conveyor belt, which is taking you down to your death, you know. Yeah. And it's like at some point you've got to decide when you're going to turn round. And it's a bit like base jumping in the respect that you pull your parachute when you get scared. Right. You know, and you turn round when you're free diving when you get scared because you suddenly you've got all this pressure that gets more and more and more and more and you're equalizing at the same time. And you know that the further you go, the longer you've got to get back up to the surface. Yeah, yeah. And it's like... So there's an equation in there <laughs> while you're in the zone. Yeah. And, uh, and, and basically, you just get to the point where you're like, yeah, okay, that's enough. I'm going to turn around <laughs> now. And then you head back up to the surface. And, uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed free diving in house sound because there's so many like amazing um, aquatic life. And, yeah, yeah. And I mean, know. I guess the, 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 does that tie back to your, you know, um, ocean zoology? Well, exactly. Studies, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyone into free, anyone interested in free diving? There's a French film, The Big Blue. Have you yeah. seen that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah I have, great yeah. film. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Check that out if you want a, a, a better look at free diving. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've covered a lot, Timmy. What is there anything else you, you want to say, or uh, you know, what's the last good book you read? Wow. Is there anything else I want to say? That's a good question too. You're good at doing questions, aren't you? Um, um, yeah, books. I'm not that big on books. Like most of the most of the books I read are about uh, um, destinations and right. places that I can find new venues. And you know, I'm always looking for ice climbs and caves and new rock places and things where I can find new routes and stuff like that. Um, but then there's the greats of like Laird Hamilton and Pioneers and you know like Wim Hof. We didn't talk about Wim Hof yet, did we? Like no, cold, no. Cold water swimming. Have you been doing that? I mean, that's been bit. big this winter with the COVID. Yeah. It seems like everyone's yeah, yeah. jumped into the cold plunging and yeah, yeah. Well, again, it right. It's um, it's a there's so there's such a common thread here, isn't there? Like so to get into. I mean, I'm sure many of you have done polar bear swims. I mean, it seems like a really popular thing with the Canadians. Um, but to be able to tolerate that cold water, it seems to me that it's absolutely 100% to do with your mind and yeah. your mindset. You know, yeah. if you think it's freezing and you hate it and you, you can't get out fast enough, that's what happens, you know. But if you get used to the sensation that you're feeling and perhaps initially it's it's discomfort if you can make friends with that and embrace it rather than repel it then all of a sudden you're like oh this is actually not too bad yeah. and then you can get that incredible um release of blood afterwards and and also i think when you've pushed through something which you thought you couldn't do it really um fulfills you with um you know uh passion and excitement and you know it's a, i think it's a, a great tool for being able to do other things that you yeah. thought you can't do i feel like that might be one of the part of the recipe for adventure is uh you know getting comfortable with discomfort mm-hmm. and it's synonymous with um free diving you know you're going down there and you, you've got a the mask starts pushing against your face and the air in your lungs is getting compressed by 30 meters you've got a quarter of the volume of air in your lungs that you yeah. do at the surface and it's like you know that's i mean luca can go down to 50 meters and then wait for a minute and then come back up again and his mentor can go down to 100 meters and wait for a minute and then go back up again wow. you know and it's like it's i'm just like how how does that even work like yeah. and i think the answer is is learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable you know 
And and I think that if you can do that, you can tolerate all sorts of things that maybe you couldn't do before. And I mean, this goes back, you know, centuries mm. and centuries to pearl divers in, in the Mediterranean and in, in Japan. And, you know, the free diving has been around in humanity for probably as long as there's been people, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, going back to the cold water aspect, it, it really sounds like there's a lot of benefits from cold water exposure, too, if yeah. you do it on a regular basis. Yeah. I'm sure you can look into that. But and then there's the, the, the Wim Hof breathing. I mean, I started doing some of that a couple of years ago when I was trying to climb it through in Spain. And I was I was um, put onto it by a really good friend of mine who was in fact, she was doing a lot of cold water swimming in the UK, Gilly MacArthur. And she said, she's like, Tim, you've got to do this. Because she was out in Spain while I was trying to climb this route. And I've been trying to climb it for many, many months. And uh, I started doing these breathing exercises once a day um, before going climbing. And it was a really interesting way of sort of tapping into my unconscious nervous system, if you can ever do that. And creating a, a, a level of relaxation which I just wasn't able to attain any other way and also like a sense of euphoria too I mean when you're doing some of these breathe ups you can get really close to passing out actually um, so you just do them lying down on a bed you never do them driving or in water or anything like that and you're basically hyperventilating for two minutes and then you exhale and hold your breath for as long as you can and you repeat that five times. And this is a quite an advanced procedure. And, I'd, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't do this if you haven't done it before. But doing that, I mean, you're holding your breath for like three minutes on an exhale, you know, which, I mean, how can you even do that? But you are. So, um, yeah, and it, and it really is incredible. The first time I ever did it, I had my whole body started vibrating, like physically moving and vibrating. It was like someone had just connected a load of, you know, electricity and voltage into my body. And it was just like I was lying on the bed vibrating. And then this, this sound started coming. I could feel this sound getting louder and louder and louder. It was just this noise. And it stayed with me for a little while. And then it started to dissipate and disappear. <laughs> and then it left. And I remember lying there. I felt the most relaxed I think I've ever been. And I got up and I walked around. And I, it was like someone had just hit the reset button. It was amazing. Um, so I started doing that on a daily basis. And uh, yeah, whether it helped my climbing, I don't know, but it definitely helped my mental state. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. I think there's an app now that you can uh, that probably build is. yourself up to it, like an official yeah. Wim Hof app, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know some of the pro skiers uh, were telling me about it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, how they how they're getting on that train. Are as they well. really? Yeah, they? that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, these you know the big mountain guys, right? Yeah, um, it feels like uh, you know almost everything that we do around here is to get to that you know that point of singularity where the the mind is clear and you, all you really care about is you know the turn in front of you or the mm. next hold or you know the wave that's about to crest or or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, flow state. That's yeah. the the, yeah. the the word, isn't it? Um, do you know what's interesting about that too? is uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought then I was going off on a tangent <laughs> what was I going to say about flow state I got lost in, in not being in flow state <laughs> yeah totally I, I have the flow state book 
um, Mikhail come sick me off or something, right? Like it's a, it's a tough book to read. But if you're into reading, uh, it's a, it's a good book. Is it? Flow is state. It? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, what what I was going to say was um, one of the things I've noticed with uh, some of the climbs that I've tried to do or have done in the past is that I if I focus on the result. I'm way I'm less likely to get there than if I focus on the individual moves. Yeah. You know, so if I'm able to stay in the present rather than thinking about what if or how do I feel, da 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 if you've got all these different things that are um bombarding your current thought, it's distracting you from doing what you actually want to be doing. So if you can get into the present like, for example, a really good friend of mine who's a, a life coach, actually. Um, he's done all sorts of different coaching with some... <laughs> but he's done some negotiation with also, with, for the government, too. Um, one of the things he said to me when he, he belayed me on a route called uh, Captain America at Chequemus, which is a, a 14C there that was the hardest route I'd ever done at the time. And I was trying to do it, and I kept falling off. And he belayed me this one day, and he said, Tim, concentrate on the move that you're doing and do it the best that you possibly can and then do the next one that's it don't think about anything else if yeah. you think about anything else just focus on what you're doing in that moment and um, I've really embraced that since and uh, I find that really helpful actually because as soon you've got all the chatter of like the the other things that can be going on in yeah. your mind and if you're thinking about those they're really intercepting what you should be thinking about so to speak to be able to perform at your best and our buddy John Turk talks about that from a safety aspect right he's like mm. when you're not when you're not 100% there on the mountain you're going to miss the signs of mm. something potentially dangerous that's coming at you mm. if you're thinking about the summit and you're only a third way up yeah you might miss yeah. a, a sensation in the snow that means yeah. it's all coming down or whatever yeah yeah and I mean the other thing with that too I mean this is a whole new topic but like technology and distraction you know what right. I mean like yeah. when you're in the mountains when you're in the moment you're not on your phone and you're not thinking about things yeah. on your phone yeah. you're like aware of the the natural environment around you and you're like locked into that um and i think that that's really helpful to to you know sharpen your senses and be in touch with nature yeah yeah yeah, I know the the, the one-eyed beast is, is sucking all of our souls, isn't it? Timmy, you do talk to a lot of school groups, corporate groups, um, stuff like that. If we're going to close it out here, you know, join on that. What is the sort of, uh, you know, the Tim Emmett secret to a good life? Like, what, if you could sum all that up into one little phrase here for the, for the listeners. Um, make the most of it. Make them, like, take advantage of the opportunities that you've got right now and do it. I mean, Todd Lawson's got a cracking saying, you know, like, do it now. Like, life is, life is short. It might not seem like it. And depending on how old you are, you know, I'm sure you'll have different opinions on this. But um, life goes past really quick. And if you have an opportunity to do something, do it. In, in, like, realize the fact that you've got the opportunity and, uh, and go for it. Yeah. Have yeah. it. Have it. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> and have fun, too. Well, Timmy, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. I uh, appreciate you coming by. And, uh, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. You know, uh, keep your chains lubed and your edges sharp. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Nice one, Feet. Thanks very much. Look at that great talk with tim thank you tim for doing that and thank you guys for coming in episode one is in the can 
Thank you so much for listening. It's very important to recognize that this podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Squamish First Nation, and we respect and honor their history, culture, and rights. We got to give a shout out as well and a bunch of love to our friend Sharai Rules, who laid down the vocals for the intro to this episode, and our longtime friend and incredible ball hockey goaltender, Adrian Gendro. He hooked us up with the guitars off the top and probably the guitars I'm going to slide in here as it flows out. So thanks so much for tuning in. We will be back in a month talking to contemporary Indigenous artist Levi Nelson. Or maybe it'll be mountain bike legend Brett Tippy. Who knows? We're figuring it out as we go. But one thing's for sure, we're living it up. And so should you. <laughs>